0: Welcome to the IBCD Care and Discipleship Podcast. I'm Craig Marshall, and we're in full swing setting up for the Summer Institute, which begins tomorrow. I'm really excited about it and hope to see you all there. Today on the podcast, we're going to play the rest of our interview with Zach Eswine and his wife, Jessica, which was recorded during the ministry weekend this past February. Zach, the, the other book that you're going to be speaking about, which for us is tomorrow, is Spurgeon's Sorrows. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what brought you to write that book?
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Number one is just personal experience. Um, My own uh, wrestling match with uh, circumstantial um, depression and biological temperament, it's melancholy, and circumstances of spiritual depression. And Having to come to terms with those things in my own life, just as a follower of Jesus, how do I make sense of this? how do I walk through that? But then, as a pastor, just seeing that in personal experience, time and time again, uh, there's a lot of sadness, and there's a lot of sadness that turns into sickness, Um, uh, a depression that stays. And um, how, as a pastor, so that's the first thing: personal experience as a human being and as a pastor. Mm -hmm. The second thing is our, to be honest, my own theological heritage, uh, the tribe that I'm in, the culture that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are we have many remarkable strengths, and sometimes relational care is not one of them. And, uh, uh, and so I thought, how can I talk about, um, how can I say depression is not a sin in our circles? Well, I'm going to hide behind someone we respect who said it already. So I'm just being honest. Charles, strategically, to try To try to give someone the chance to hear, Uh, I wanted to highlight Charles Spurgeon's ongoing uh, struggle temperamentally, circumstantially, spiritually, with um, sadness and how he spoke of it. And he spoke of it, he's way ahead of his time and how transparent he is about it all and the way he theologically describes it and situates it. And the helps that he calls us to, and so I thought to be able to hide behind him a little bit, mm-hmm. even though he's more of a. As you read the book, he's not always front and center. He's more of our traveling companion, but nonetheless, uh, strategically situating. Quote, Some of the things he says we are just remarkable, and it's hard to imagine it's a Reformed Baptist brother mm-hmm. saying that. And uh, I say that a little tongue in cheek as a <laughs> uh, to my dear friends, you know I'm. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they would tease me as a Presbyterian, you know, I'm a frozen chosen guy, you know, uh, in all humor, but, but that's part of it too. Mm -hmm. That's why I spoke of it from him.
0: So depression as a word in the church can be a bombshell and in some ways it can be a loaded term. And then the word that you introduced next to it was sin. Yes. And the relationship of those two things, um, can be divisive. It can, people can get very, uh, Mm -hmm. worked up about that. Um, yeah you Want to talk with me a little bit about how you relate those together in your head?
1: So, um, so my assumption is that um, there's a, there's chemistry, there's circumstances, and there's the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say, the one that opposes the spirit, uh, the evil one. And so, uh, sadness can come from temperament, just sort of a uh, uh, from a circumstance. And from the enemy of our soul, and it's a it's a it's a same thing to be sad about sad things. Mm-hmm. It's a wise response to the fallenness of the world to be sad about a sad thing. Uh, depression is sadness that grows ill. Uh, it's a proportionate sadness, a, a proper sadness, often that um, gets infected, and it. Uh it's, it's like a tenant that the lease is up, it's supposed to leave, and it won't. And um, it sticks around. It's, it's uh, like an, a mental arthritis uh, that starts to work its way into us um, that we have to manage. And so um, sadness, there's no cure for sadness until the new kingdom comes in Christ. And we're going to be sad. Um, there's a time to mourn. Depression is sadness gone wrong. Sadness gone out of proportion. Mm-hmm. I want to pause there. Uh, to be proportionate with sadness, let's we have to think about that a lot. Because if you're Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more, because King Herod just committed infanticide, what is a proportional response of mm-hmm. sadness to that? Uh, how long does someone need before they shouldn't be sad anymore? You know? mm mm-hmm. And so a lot of us are impatient and we have to adjust. So everyone should have the room to be proportionately sad to the thing itself. And uh, depression is, so maybe that's a little d depression, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's, I'm not a therapist, I'm a pastor. So I know they're, you know, it's reactive. Uh, Archibald, Har- Archibald Hart called this reactive depression. That's the proper thing. The depression gone bad is when, It becomes, as Charles Spurgeon said, a disease, and um, it's in us in some way. So uh, being depressed um, is not a sin. It's a misfortune, Spurgeon says, not a fault, Uh, uh, particularly when it's due to temperament or the trauma of a circumstance that stays with us the rest of our life. Uh it's not a sin. We can respond sinfully. So there's that's one distinction. Mm-hmm. The sadness itself, even the depression itself is not a sin, but we can respond out of that sinfully. Second, we can be depressed sinfully. And it would be this if I'm depressed because oh, say, so if Charles Spurgeon uh, years and years and years after a stampede at his congregation that killed several people and maimed many others, uh, years and years ago, my memory's failing. Maybe it was 20 years ago. later. He is preaching in a large crowd. The crowd is pressing toward the stage and he has what we would call a flashback. He begins to break down, uh, because the memory of the, of the trauma from those years ago are suddenly with him. And, uh, he reported, and the, the reporter who's with him, that he didn't know if he could even speak because he was unmanned. That's how he described his bodily response. He's not sinning. He's having a, 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 a triggered response to an actual trauma in his life. Now, if he responded to that in some way, that can be a sin. But let's imagine it's not a triggered trauma that has made him depressed. Let's imagine it's not just out of his chemistry in his body that it makes him prone, more prone to darker hues in life. Let's imagine um, that um, he loves drink. Uh, let's remove it from Charles Spurgeon now. Uh, let's imagine someone loves just loves too much to drink, and now they're sad because that drink's been taken away. Um, that That's a sinful depression. Uh, I I want to have an affair, and now the affair is removed, and I'm sad. Now, I'm I'm sad about something that isn't actually sad. I'm sad about something that would have destroyed. I'm sad at losing what would have destroyed me and my family. That is a sinful root mm-hmm. of a depression. Yeah. Uh, and so those are some distinctions as a pastor that someone uh, who's trained as a counselor could probably be more precise about. Uh, but that's that's how I'm thinking of yeah, it.
0: That's helpful. The the subtitle uh, for Spurgeon Sorrows is realistic hope for those who suffer from depression. So, um, one thing is the the assumption that people are suffering from this, and just the awareness of that in our churches. Yeah. Um, was that something that you were less aware of? Maybe when you started pastoral ministry, or um, how has your awareness of people's suffering changed? Yeah, I was. I mean,
1: I was aware of suffering because of my own the brokenness of my own family background, and uh, the melancholy, in my own temperament. Uh, but I certainly was not aware of suffering in the sense of what it means to be in local ministry. The, I mean, I would know in the Catechism and Confessions to talk about the miseries of this life, the effects of sin and the miseries of this life. I just never. Like took that serious. I I thought I did intellectually, but I had a, no imaginative no imaginative capacity to envision how that actually works out in the world. Even though the scriptures everywhere gives us a language for sorrow. I mean, it it's the old the Old Testament families are uh, wrecked with brokenness and um, sadness, and uh, the Psalms and the wisdom literature. Uh, Psalm 77, you know, uh, I cannot sleep, you know, I think of God and I moan, you know, I I no longer remember my song in the night, you know, all this kind of language. Somehow I just overlooked it, mm-hmm. you know, I, I studied it, I parsed it, but I didn't realize that would be the actual language. I hated life because of what's done under the sun. I, I didn't realize that God was giving us language to talk to him about how truly fundamentally broken everything is. And so I think just <laughs> growing, you know, honest about things. And I think the other thing I didn't realize is what I've called inconsolable things, things that cannot be fixed on this side of heaven because God, because whatever reason, the Lord leaves them unfixed. So there are a lot of can'ts in the New Testament, things that that we can't uh, over overcome until He comes, and it's this uh, this tension between uh, if you have faith of a of a mustard seed, you know you can move a mountain, and then at the same time, the same Savior said, "The poor you will always have with you." So it doesn't matter how much faith I have as it relates to poverty, that brokenness, economic brokenness, will be with us until he comes. So I, I cannot defeat death. I cannot defeat sickness. I cannot stop the aging process. There are some things that no matter how much faith I have, I cannot undo. And, and, and tied to that is the thought, uh, imagining, being, having a capacity to think about what is true that Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, immediately had a death threat on his life. It's right there in the text. And he still died. And that anyone our Lord healed who couldn't walk before, now they're walking, they could still break their leg. You know, someone was blind who could still get sand in their eyes. You know, that healing is in heaven. And so I think Both in person, to summarize what I'm saying, both in personal experience, I just wasn't aware. I didn't know how to apply the things I'd been taught. But then also the scriptures that are right in front of me are shouting out this Mm -hmm. dictionary of language to give words to sadness and brokenness. I just didn't see it.
0: Yeah.
1: I see it more now.
0: It's one thing I really appreciate about the book was just it's amazing to me how much that language is in Scripture, and for some reason we don't see it. And so having it just put together somewhere where it's saying, "It's all over the place," and yeah. uh, I don't know why we don't connect the dots a lot yeah. of times on those things. But
1: I think another thing that uh, I underestimated is our own theology, which tells us we're body and soul. Mm-hmm. Some people would add spirit. I understand that tripartite and you know all that, but. The physicality of that's what that's part of our Christian teaching. It's what distinguishes us from Platonism or mm-hmm. Gnosticism or Hinduism or Buddhism. It's the the individual physicality of a human being, mm-hmm. and I Spurgeon pointed this out: how we're very readily aware of a, a broken bone, but we underestimate a broken brain. In a fallen world, somehow we think if you just have faith enough, if you just say the right scriptures, if you just somehow, it's different than a broken bone. Somehow the bone, we know it takes time; it just won't fix overnight. You're gonna have to set it, and then you're gonna have to, you know, stabilize it for six to weeks or eight weeks. Or, but somehow when it comes to some uh, trauma. We we think somehow someone should just get over that. Mm-hmm. If they were a Christian, they would just get over. It. And I think it's because we're our theology of the body, our theology of physicality, is impoverished. And um, if if we had a, a greater robust application of the fact that we're body soul creatures, I think we'd have better categories to understand how it is that Spurgeon all those years later. Um, is sweating and undergoing what looks like some kind of panic attack, uh, just because of a crowd in a room.
0: Profound implications of of having a body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, for sure. <clears throat> um, the I want to talk just a little bit about the the two words, kind of in that subtitle, realistic and hope, um, and especially in regards to realistic. What are ways that you see that? That we as believers may be unintentionally, probably, maybe intentionally unrealistic in how we're thinking about depression and sorrows. Um, probably that's
1: a great question. This, I suppose the culmination of the things we've been hinting at that uh, uh, you it is unrealistic to believe that someone can just think hard enough. And think right enough, and that, and then heaven enters in. It's um, that's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the, it can be at its worst, right? I understand the proper place of setting our mind upon the scripture and the truth. I mean, but at its worst, it's no different than I think I can. I think I can. It's just using spiritual language. And there are some mountains when the little train who could will finally face it that he can't, no matter how much he thinks he can, he can't. And that's why we need the gospel. And and so I think it's unrealistic. Sometimes spouses, it's hard on us, you know, if our spouse or our friend or someone just suddenly enters this season of debilita- debilitating depression. And they themselves don't know why and can't understand it. And uh, maybe there's a physical response to that. They can't walk, and they're paralyzed in their bed. and the doctor, there is nothing physically wrong it's It's an expression of an inward trauma, and you want to just look at that and say, "This is ridiculous. Get out of it." you know, but it's unrealistic. Uh, uh, words themselves do not have the power to. Uh, heal. It's the one who gave us the word. It has to do that, and so I think we're unrealistic if we just t- say to someone, "Take these two scripture passages and call me in the morning." Um, it is more like we walk with those scripture passages. A lot of times, a person already knows those scripture passages. It we're bringing again. We're we're bringing in that word quick again. Mm-hmm. Rather than an ongoing walking and tasting with and working with this relational Lord who is speaking truth to us, we we treat it more like a a fortune cookie uh, or a, a a magic chant. I say these words, uh, Spectral patronum, and boom, uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Boom, you're better. It just doesn't work that way. However realistic hope is that there is a God who so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. And right now, your body won't let you walk, and you're going out of your mind because you don't know why. And a counselor and a pastor and a deacon and a friend are with you, and your closest friend has just impatiently yelled at you to get better. And you're trying to understand all this, and so are they, and none of us do. But he does. And so now we linger again, with the lover of our soul who's given us his own son and who's measured up for all this and who understands the end game and who's getting us through. And we wait. And so that that language of be strong, wait upon the Lord, comes into play. And perhaps what that actually means to take courage and wait upon the Lord is what leads us to our unrealism and naivete or our realism in our strong faith, you know, to wait through. So that's part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's probably a better language to be more precise about what I'm trying to capture, but that's part of it, you know. Yeah. We can
0: be substantially healed, but just not, not fully. Um, one, one final question, just in thinking through um, Spurgeon Sorrows and just helping people. How do we keep from getting overwhelmed? In the midst of caring for those who are overwhelmed,
1: yeah, that's so. That's I, we. That's a question we live with. I think all our days until he comes. Like we just need each other to help each other. Mm-hmm. We're caring for others. Spurgeon uh, talks about this, how he himself had to go to Mentone, France. Eventually, he had to take um, uh, one to three months off every year, and go away to a place of beauty. Nature away from the London dampness mm-hmm. and fog, uh, and to to find rest for his mind and for his body and his bouts with physical ailment and mental depression. But people would find him, mm. <laughs> so people would come to find him in their depression, mm. seeking his help, and he talks about this how here he is. Trying to have strategic rest for his own mm-hmm. sake, being found by others, you know, and to minister to them. And so a couple of things uh, that he mentions that are are helpful is just one, we need community. So as a caregiver, I need someone. I need a community that is caring for me. And that that might mean that it's it's the person or the people. That we can talk to in unqualified ways. I can say that I'm sad and exhausted, and I don't have to qualify. Now I really still trust God, but and this just to say it, oh, I'm damn sad. This is hard, and I'm. It's a tough day. Just mm-hmm. be able to say that mm-hmm. to know that we still love the Lord. Um, and the second thing is, uh, besides the one day in seven, and besides the four portions of a the day, uh, these seasons of strategic pause for the sake of ongoing passionate work. We just have to have the pause in our life. Uh, so for Spurgeon, it would be um, weeks at a time in Mentone, France. Uh, for us, it I don't know. It's a weekend. It's a month. I don't know what it is, mm-hmm. but we have to have a strategic break. Um, just as our Lord uh, regularly withdrew to desolate places, um, We too need that. And just as the Lord said to his disciples who were wore out and hadn't been able to eat, come away with me to a quiet place. We need that Mm -hmm. in community together. And so I think um, another thing too is that we learn ourselves. We learn and know ourselves. There may be some types of help that we're just not able to give. Mm -hmm. We have to learn that. I was talking to a counselor recently who because of his own story, finds himself counseling people with similar things. Mm. And then after about his three years into that, realizing he can't keep doing it. he's it, It's hard for him to admit, but he can't keep doing it. He, to, to live with the very thing he himself wrestles with, uh, with f- four or five or seven people a day over the course of a week, over three years, he can't do it. Um, So he has to step back Mm -hmm. and let go of that aspect of his counseling practice, at least for a while, just for his own heart. And to know that that is, it's not weakness, it's wisdom to acknowledge that. And to know that there's a team of people, there are other people who can, they can step into that and they're okay. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing. The not only a community that we can talk to, honestly, but a community to lean on that we don't have all the gifts and mm-hmm. we can't. There are other people who can handle what we can't, and they can provide care that we can't. And that doesn't mean the care we provide is somehow deficient.
0: Yeah. So read The Imperfect Pastor yeah. to figure out those. <laughs> <laughs> right As you're helping people with sorrows, dealing with your own sorrow, read yeah. that book as well. And we cover all that there. <laughs> That's great. Zach and Jessica, this has been great. Thanks for coming out, Southern California. Thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. It's been a blessing to get to know you both a little bit better. And um, thanks for listening to the Care and Discipleship podcast. And we look forward to being with you next time.